0: Welcome to Faith Covenant Church. Good to have you all here today. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here. And today is week three of a series that we're doing called Gold, Goats, and Justice, where we're talking about some stories that Jesus told that are meant to shape our hearts and guide our lives. Today we have a story of Jesus that is honestly a a little bit bewildering. And so we're going to take some time picking it apart and trying to figure it out. But before we do that, let's spend a little bit of time praying together. Father, thank you for another chance to be together as your people. We thank you for um, the the ability to sing you songs of praise and to get the joy that comes with that. Thank you for our church family. Helps us feel cared and, and a part of something. We do pray today for Trunk or Treat next week. As we finish putting all the plans in in process and making it happen, pray that you give us a great turnout. Help the weather be good and not terrible. Help us get a a ton of folks out there to have a great time and have a good experience with our church and with our people so that it can be another opportunity for us to introduce uh, more people into your family. We pray all this in your name. Amen. We're just going to jump right into it today. So I've got a story that I'm going to read to you from Jesus. This is Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. This is how it goes. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Nine hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred and fifty. Then he asked the second, "'How much do you owe, my master?' "'A thousand bushels of wheat,' he replied. So he told him, "'Take your bill and make it eight hundred. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself.' So that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. i got to tell you, this is a weird one. It's very, very strange. It's one of the harder stories of Jesus to understand. Now, a lot of times we love preaching on hard passages. There's something that's fun and cathartic about taking something that's honestly quite confusing and trying to make sense of it, but sometimes what happens when we focus too much on hard-to-understand passages is it gives us this idea that the whole Bible is hard for us to comprehend. And so let me just tell you, before we really dive in, the Bible is not all hard to understand. You can read it for yourself. And while there are a few areas that are a little bit tricky, most of the New Testament, especially the teachings of Jesus, are quite understandable minus this one. (laughs) So so let's we're going to take a little bit of time. We're going to pick this one apart and see what it means. Jesus starts by saying this. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. So here's what's going on. You've got a rich guy. He has so much wealth that he needs other people to help him manage it. And this rich guy, he heard one of his managers was being irresponsible with his wealth, you know, wasting away what was entrusted for him to manage. So the rich guy decides, hey, I need to fire this manager. Now, if our story ended here, we'd be like, yeah, that story makes a ton of sense, If you hire a guy to do a job and he doesn't do it, fire him. We like that kind of story. Swift justice, responsibility, do the job or get canned. But this is um, just the beginning of the story. And as we just read, it gets a lot tougher to understand from this point. So what happens next? Jesus, he introduces us to the dishonest manager. As Luke tells it, it goes like this. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I personally love how honest this guy is. He's obviously worried. He's like, where am I going to live? How am I going to feed my family? I'm never going to financially recover from this. Anyone watch Tiger King? No? All right, my pop pop references are failing today. That's okay. So he's basically saying, what am I going to do? And then he says the most white-collar thing in the world. He says, I can't dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Basically, he's saying, ah, I've been sitting behind a desk way too long. I can't get fired now. I'm not cut out for manual labor anymore. You've seen my manicure? And check out these shoes. These are not digging shoes. These are desk-sitting shoes. I can't do that. I can't go back to that kind of work. And obviously, I don't want to beg. I mean, think of what people will say about me. They're going to sit around for dinner, and they're going to say, did you see Joseph out there on the streets? He used to have a great job, and now he's out there begging on the corner. Well, I heard he wasn't honest. Well, I heard he was drinking too much wine. He can't dig. He's ashamed to beg. So what does he do? Well, he thinks about it, sits around, he ponders a little bit, and then it comes to him. He says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He replied, take your bill and make it 800 This is where our story starts to get sketchy. This manager, he goes to the different people who owe his employer money, he asks to see their bills, and he changes the bills to make it look like they owe less than they actually do. Now, I don't know what it's like at your work, but typically, Falsifying business records tends to make the situation worse rather than better. But that's exactly what this guy does. He, um, he's in. This is an important detail. He's not like rounding this down by like 50 cents. You know, the difference between 900 gallons of olive oil and 450 uh, gallons of o- olive oil, this isn't like 75 cents. No, this is a tremendous amount of money. Just think about this first amount. He takes 900 gallons of oil, which uh, if we put that into modern terms, it basically is a little bit like this. This is the olive oil from an entire olive orchard. It is the oil that would have been pressed from about 150 olive trees. And scholars think that this would be essentially the wages for an average merchant for two to three years. It's two to three years worth of wages. And what's this manager do? He cuts it in half. This would be like him coming up to you and being like, hey, you owe my boss $300,000. Let's just make it 150 dollars How's that sound? To the person who owes the money, this is a life-changing amount of money that was just saved. Basically, it's an entire year's worth of earnings. But on the flip side, to this rich employer, this is a lot of money that's lost. Take that next bill of 1,000 bushels of wheat. This would have been wheat from 100 acres of land, and it would have been something like 10 years worth of wages for your average laborer. So this manager, he's like, hey, you, you owe a a thousand, 1,000 bushels of wheat. You owe 10 years worth of wages. Let's make it 800. Let's make it eight years. These are huge amounts of money saved. This is the difference between... Making a little bit of money in a year and making a lot of money in a year. For some people, this is the difference between going bankrupt and flourishing. And these people, they would have been overjoyed, full of gratitude. Well, that's exactly what the dishonest servant wants to have happen. Because he's trying to create a situation where he can now go to any of these people, knock on their door, and say, Hey, you remember that time I changed your life? Well, I'm going to need to stay with you for a while. This manager, he's using the debt reductions as a way of weaseling himself into these people's good graces so that when he needs it, he can call in a favor and they'll take care of him. Sounds a little sketchy, but it's kind of smart. That's exactly what Jesus says in the next verse. Jesus said, the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. This is the part of the story that starts to make us uncomfortable. We think, how could Jesus tell a story where this kind of dishonest behavior is applauded? We're going to pull back the curtain for a second and show you the behind the scenes of biblical scholarship. Oftentimes, when something doesn't sit well with biblical scholars, they'll ask this question. They'll say, am I missing something Is there some sort of historical context or situation that has to do with their culture that would help make this story fit better in how I understand things? So over the last 2,000 years or so, as as people have read this and been like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable, they have asked that question. And basically, there are three answers that scholars have given to, is there something going on that might help this make more sense? And the first way scholars have tried to ease the discomfort here is they have said, hey, this story has to do with first century Jewish usury laws. Usury is the charging of interest. And essentially, in Jesus' setting, Jewish merchants and businessmen were not allowed to charge interest to other Jews when money or goods were lent. Now, this created a situation where instead of charging interest, merchants would often charge huge markups when things were bought on credit, so it wasn't technically interest, but if you bought some and we're going to pay over the course of a year, it would cost this much. And if you bought something and we're going to pay for it over the course of three or four years, it would then cost this much. It was a workaround to not be paying interest. A lot of, what a lot of scholars think is that what this manager did was that he took the bills and he knocked off these interest markups. This essentially does two things for our story. First, If his employer came to him and accused him of wrongdoing, he could basically say, bro, you really want to go there? I was just cutting off the interest that you shouldn't have been charging in the first place. Now, what this does is it protects him, but also it puts him in a position where instead of being dishonest, he now seems commendable. Instead of defrauding his boss, he is just standing up for the rights of debtors. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, i got to tell you, that's a bad interpretation. Uh, (laughs) Jesus told this story in such a way where we are supposed to be uncomfortable with the dishonest manager's actions. That's why Jesus himself calls the guy dishonest. Now, the second theory that scholars have used, and I actually think this one makes a little bit of sense, is that the amounts that the dishonest servant was knocking off the bills would have been the markups that were used to pay the commission for the managers. So essentially, when this guy goes and, and knocks these bills down, he is knocking them off by what his commission would have been. Like I, I said, I think this story actually is kind of plausible. Um, for one, there's some evidence of these kind of commission markups from documents of the first century. But more than that, this actually makes a lot of the other details in the story make sense. So essentially, what you'd end up with is that this manager is taking a calculated risk. He's saying, I can cut out my commission from these bills, and while I won't get any of the commission, which he's probably not going to get anyways because he's getting fired, but at least that gives him a chance of these people receiving him warmly when he has nothing. And if the master comes to him and is like, hey, how could you do that? He can then claim oh, I was just cutting out my fair share of the bill. So what he's doing is he's taking the resources that he has available to him in this moment and using them in such a way that protects him in the future. He's saying no to something now in hopes that it becomes something bigger later. The third theory is that this manager, he's just flat-out shady and was defrauding his soon-to-be ex-employer. Now, here's the deal. It doesn't really matter which of these theories is true. They all kind of have the same point. This dishonest manager benefits the debtors by giving away money that was agreed to be paid to the wealthy employer. And in all of these cases, the manager acts in a way where he's trying to help the debtors gain so that they will then help him in the future. Regardless what we think the details are here, it's all making the same point, which is this. This manager took the resources that were available to him at that moment and he used them in a way that made total sense given his worldview, his priorities, and given his understanding of what was coming for him. This is what is shrewd about the manager. He has one priority. He wants to ensure that his way of life can continue even after he gets fired so he uses what's available to him in the moment to make sure that that happens. Now, what tends to throw off readers is how this guy's soon-to-be ex-employer commends him. But what we need to recognize is that when Jesus says that the rich man commended him, he's not saying that this rich employer is saying, wow, You've acted with so much integrity and morality. I'm impressed. You are such a moral person. Let me give you your job back. It's not the kind of commending that's happening here. Instead, this is kind of like when you're watching a reality TV show, and someone does something terrible and self-serving, but at the same time, it's like cunning and smart, and you're thinking to yourself, dang, you're a horrible person, but you kind of know what you're doing, don't you? That's the kind of commending that's happening here. Now, here's where the trouble sneaks in, and this is where we really need to start to break down this passage, because at this point, we're left thinking, okay, Jesus, is the point that it's okay to be dishonest and defraud your employer if it means that you get to now take care of yourself and your family? Because that might seem like it's a little bit out of line with Jesus' other teachings, right? That's why Jesus gives this explanation, and this is where he starts to make his point. He says this, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. People of this world, that's a euphemism. Basically, it's talking about people who aren't concerned about living rightly before God. And Jesus says, The people of the world... They're more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than people of the light. Jesus, he's drawing a contrast between the dishonest servant and us. And that contrast is this. The dishonest manager, he knows what's coming. He's getting fired. And everything he cares about is in jeopardy. And you know what else? He knows what's important to him. He doesn't want to live in squalor. He wants a place to live. He wants food to eat, clothes to wear. And also... He doesn't want to live a life where he has to dig in the dirt or beg on the streets to get those things. He has a view of the good life and he uses the resources at his disposal in a way that ensures that he gets that view. Jesus then flips this idea back on us and he says that those trying to live as people of the light, another euphemism basically meaning people who are trying to live right before God, do we demonstrate that level of shrewdness to bring about what we think the good life is? Are we using the resources at our disposal to invest in the good life that Jesus teaches about? The good life where we love one another, where we take care of the poor, where we're invested in justice, where we care more about giving to others than giving to ourselves, We're reaching the masses and growing in our walk with Jesus are more important than having those new shoes or a fancy car. Jesus is basically saying, if this guy, this dishonest servant, is able to see what matters to him and he has the wisdom to act shrewdly to bring that about, what's keeping us from using our resources, the resources at our disposal, to pursue the things that we should know matter most? This idea, it's explained even further in the next sentence. And this is probably the most pivotal sentence of this whole passage. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let me just pause and say, if that doesn't make sense to you, you're in good company. This is a very strange sentence. So let's just ask some clarifying questions. First thing to ask What does Jesus mean when he says worldly wealth? Well, in short, Jesus means money, cash, moolah. In the New Testament, Jesus, he often differentiates between what he calls treasure in heaven and treasure on earth. And worldly wealth, or as it's translated in some translations, unrighteous wealth, it's not a reference to wealth that's gained through immoral or illegal channels. It's just a reference to, to the money of this world, non-spiritual, non-heavenly treasure. It is the money and resources that God has given us to steward while we're in this present worldly state. Next, we got to ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says, so that when it's gone? Or as the ESV puts it, so that when it fails. Now, there are a couple ways that worldly wealth fails to be useful. Sometimes it just runs out, right? It like, we spend it all or the stock market crashes or we get fired from our jobs and all of a sudden, the thing that made our life work, it paid our bills, it cuts our lawn, it fixes our houses. All of a sudden, it's just no longer there. It fails us. This is probably not what Jesus meant though. The reason why is that there are a lot of people who don't ever experience this kind of failure of money. There are people who live their whole lives comfortably, and then they die. Their money never really fails them. And when Jesus is explaining the story, he doesn't say, so that if it fails you. Instead, he says, when it fails you. He is talking about a type of failure that all of us will experience, which is partly why this is most likely a reference to everyone's impending death. The idea is that when it comes time for you to stand before Jesus, you're not going to be like, how much does it cost to get in? I would like one season pass to eternity with Jesus, please. And I'd like a fast pass for a selfie with Moses, if I can get that as well. There is a time where your money will make no difference. Everyone reaches a point where the wealth you gained no longer has any ability to help you. It fails you. It runs out. So Jesus, he's talking here about how we use the resources we've been given on this earth, and he wants, to use, he wants us to use them in a way right now where it has an impact that goes beyond the place in time where our money still has value. Man, does he say it in a way that's hard to understand. He says, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let me start by saying two things this does not mean. This does not mean that the way that you use your money determines whether or not you'll spend eternity with Jesus. The entirety of the New Testament teaches that what makes us right with God and what secures us a place in his kingdom is not whether we've used our money right, it's whether we have trusted in the grace of God through the work of Jesus to make us right with him. That's it. This also does not mean that we should only be thinking about whether the way we use our money will start to rack up favors and esteem with those that we use our money on. That falls totally out of line with Jesus's other teachings on generosity. In fact, earlier in the book of Luke, Jesus specifically taught that our generosity should be done with no expectations of reciprocity. He said this, and if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So what does this mean then? Well, basically, Jesus is saying, be generous. Use your money in a way that invests in other people. Give to those in need. Be the one who pays for dinner. Support a kid in the developing world so that they can have food and an education and be well-clothed. Use your money in such a way where it should make others feel grateful for the generosity that they've received. That way, when you die and you show up in the new heavens and the new earth, you will run into all of these people who are going to be excited to see you. They're going to be like, hey, look who it is. You were generous to me once. And they will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Jesus is encouraging us toward a radical generosity that is simply the obvious conclusion of what it looks like to be shrewd with our money given Jesus' teachings of what the good life looks like. Let's put all this together. Jesus tells the story of the dishonest manager, who demonstrates a level of shrewdness that the people of God seem to miss sometimes. And his point is that if the people of this world are able to use their resources in a way that makes sense given their understanding of how things work and what they want, we should be using resources that have been given to us in a way that makes sense given our understanding of how things should work and what we should want. Jesus is saying, that's the shrewdness here. We should be using our resources in a way that makes sense, given our understanding of the good life that Jesus taught. Now, anytime you read a passage in the Bible, it's important to remind yourself, this is just one of many passages that create a larger teaching on this subject. One story or one teaching, it typically does not represent the totality of Jesus' teachings. And there's this really important section of Jesus' teaching on money in Matthew chapter 6 that I think helps us to have a greater degree of clarity about this passage and honestly the rest of Jesus' teachings on money. So I I want us to try and see how these two passages are connected. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In this teaching, Jesus lays out two approaches to wealth. The first is the way of accumulation and anxiety. This is the way of life that's worried about gaining things. A nice house, nice clothes, cars. We're worried about accumulating treasures on earth. We want to be the most comfortable, have the best things, live the most stable, well-entertained lives that we possibly can. Our primary concern for our wealth is how it can serve our desires for food, clothes, homes, trinkets, great vacations. The other way of life is what Jesus calls the way of the kingdom of God, which it doesn't prohibit us from having nice clothes or a nice car or a nice home, but it changes our priority so that instead of thinking that the primary purpose of our wealth is to give us the best, most comfortable, most stable, most well-entertained life that we can have, instead our primary concern is investing our wealth into God's priorities. The problem with the way of accumulation is that it tends to cause anxiety. We worry about having the right things, or having enough, or running out of money, or even losing the lifestyle that we've built. Jesus is really clear. He basically says, if that's what's consuming you, your clothes, your homes, extravagant foods, then you worry about things that aren't as important as you might think. Do the birds or the flowers worry about any of that? Look how God takes care of them. And his, his alternative is simply this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now when Jesus says to seek the kingdom of God, uh, this is a reference. The kingdom of God is a reference to a world that looks like God wants it to be. It is a world in which all is as God would have it. And so by seeking first the kingdom of God, it's this idea that we see our lives, and implied here is is money because this is a teaching about money, we see the money God has entrusted to us as something that is meant to be used to make the world look more like what God would have it be. We use our money for things like caring for the sick, the poor, the oppressed. We use it to invest in the mission of the church. We use it to bring joy to other people, to bless our friends and our enemies. Now let's tie this back to our original story. In our story, the dishonest manager clearly exemplifies The attitude of accumulation and anxiety. When he finds out he's losing his job, he says, What am I going to do now? My master's taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig. I don't want to beg. Basically, he's saying, I have built this life as a manager. If I lose my job, where am I going to live? What am I going to eat? I can't go back to the life of a day laborer. I can't dig. I am too good to beg. Do you see the way of accumulation and anxiety here? He has built a good life for himself, and now he sees it all crumbling, and his anxiety seeps in. This is his worldview. It's all about, where am I going to live? What am I going to eat? What about my clothes? I don't want to dig. I'm too good to beg. And so Jesus' point is that given this guy's worldview... He's acting shrewdly. It makes sense. We're not gonna say he's moral or ethical, but we might say that he displays a certain amount of wisdom. But then Jesus flips it over on us. If this guy, who's not a godly man, acts in a way that is shrewd according to his worldview, why don't God's people take the resources available to them and act shrewdly? based on the kingdom of God worldview that has been given to us. Where the things that we're supposed to care about aren't houses and cars and clothes, but are things like caring for the poor, supporting our neighbors, loving our enemies, giving to those who ask of us. This helps Jesus' words in the next couple of verses, starting in verse 10 of our story, make more sense. Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Then this is verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Anytime we talk about money, there's a tension. Ah, you know, he's just going to ask us to tithe. This is the part of the sermon where he's going to talk about giving to the church. I, I do want you to tithe. I do want you to give to the church. I think those are really important disciplines that shape our hearts and actually protect us from those like life-sucking forces of greed and advertising. But that's not my application here. And here's the reason. I think in these verses, Jesus is saying something that is extremely important for us modern suburbanites who live in a time where we have more money and more access to things than anyone in the history of the world has ever had. That is that Jesus is warning us about the power of money capture our hearts and how if we want to be people who use our money to live into the priorities that Jesus teaches are good and right, we have to be extremely intentional and protective about how we use the wealth that's been given to us. There is something about living in a time where we pretty much get to have whatever we want that is not good for us. The more comfortable we get, the more stuff we buy, the more we lean into money and resources, the easier it is for us to get into the trap where whether we recognize it or not, we are ruled by our money and by the type of life that it provides for us. Here's a question to help us flesh out if this is an issue for us. If you felt that God was asking you to live with less, I mean really live with less, smaller houses, crummier cars, no more nice dinners out, so that you could invest more of your wealth into things like making sure kids in the developing world have enough food to eat, or even making sure that kids in your church can afford to go to a camp where they'll find Jesus, or even so that you can invest in initiatives that help bring about more just and equitable circumstances in the world. How willing would you be to scale back your lifestyle to do that? If you're anything like me, you're probably saying, I'd have a hard time doing that. I like the type of life that I live. In fact, I have worked hard for the type of life that I live. That's the feeling that first comes to mind. These words of Jesus are meant for you. Jesus is warning us it is easy to get ourselves into a space where worldly priorities run our finances and where money and the life that it provides rules us. Jesus's point is simple. Are you using your wealth in a way that's consistent with priorities and practices that Jesus teaches? Or are we less shrewd than this ungodly, dishonest manager? It's a hard story. It's a hard story to read. But I do have four little pieces of applications or summary points that I think we can take away from this that you can remember. The first is this. It's not our money. It's God's. He's entrusted it to you. And we need to seriously think about how we steward it for Him. And with that, you're going to have to give an account for what you did with the resources that were entrusted to you. What we do with that money, while it's not salvific, it does show what we truly loved in this life. So if you're looking for an overarching principle on how you can try and use your money in a way that's more consistent with what Jesus teaches, it's just this. Generosity is the way. Planning our finances so that we can give more to the things that matter to Jesus? That's the simple answer. Generosity is the way. And finally, we have to take away from this story, be careful of the power of money. It has a way of getting its talons into us without us ever seeing that it's taken us captive. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the story. Thank you for how it challenges us. Thank you for how it asks us to consider what we do with what you've given us. We pray for wisdom, that you may help us discern ways that we can use the money you've given to us in a way that is more consistent with your priorities. Help us realize that the true joys and generosity and not accumulation, that the ways of accumulation lead to anxiety, but the ways of the kingdom lead to peace. Help us live into those truths. Pray this in your name. Amen.